0: And if there was no interest on loans, actually you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to get into that dark place of feeling like there was no way out, would you? If there was um, another thing that's in the law is no profit on food, I'd like to imagine what that would be like in our society as well. Imagine that. You're walking around the supermarket and there's no profit on food. It would make a massive difference. We probably wouldn't have food banks. In this country. I mean, obviously, I'm just going through, skating through, and I recognise there are different arguments for why we might not do these things. But I'm just saying that God built compassion into the heart of the law. That actually God was concerned about poverty. He said in the law that wages should be paid on time. And one of the things that's really, really beautiful in the law of God is that there were two... um, kind of occasions that would come around regularly. One of them was the Sabbath year, every seventh year, where every debt would be cancelled. And in the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, not only would your debts be cancelled, but if you had had to put yourself into slavery with another family, if you had had to do that to survive, you would regain your freedom. Not only that, you'd be given back the land that belonged to your family. So if you'd had to give that up to survive or move away from it to survive, you'd be given it back. It's absolute grace built into the heart of the law. Because what this meant is the rich couldn't go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor. But also the poor could never ever be in a hopeless state. Because you would know you only had to wait for the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. And it was like God would press this massive reset button. And it wasn't just that you were then given your freedom or told you could return to your land or had your debts cancelled so you start from nothing again. Actually, what God said is when, when you release people, when you send them back to your land, when you cancel their debts, supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. So it wasn't just, you know, go and hope they make a better go of it next time around. It was, no, supply them liberally with everything they need so that they can live and flourish and thrive. Compassion was built into the very heart of the law because it's based on who God is. And so he wanted his people to reflect him to those around them. And obviously we see this in the life of Jesus too. You know, Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion characterized Jesus and was actually a hallmark of his interactions with people, not just with individuals, although it's definitely there, you can't miss it there, but also with crowds. You know, even a few chapters on from that in Matthew 14, Jesus has just found out that uh, John the Baptist has been killed. And it says there that Jesus withdrew to be on his own. He wanted to go and be on his own. You know, he's grief stricken. He's just heard that. Basically, someone that he knew and loved had had their head chopped off. You know, he he's wants to get away, wouldn't you? If you were in those circumstances, you'd probably you'd want to withdraw. But it says that the crowds followed him. And then it says, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Then he went on to feed 5,000 of them. And actually, even in his grief, even in needing time on his own... Jesus is characterised by this deep sense of compassion towards other people, rather than just wanting to, you know, take care of himself. I love this um, thing that Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 36, where he basically says um, to those listening to him, be merciful just as your father is merciful. You know, so we've got this God who primarily identifies himself as a compassionate and gracious God, a merciful God. And then Jesus here says to the people listening to him, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So there's this wonderful invitation to us actually to be like God in these things. To be merciful, to be compassionate. We get to imitate him, we get to represent him to those around us, and to display his nature in our own lives to those around us, regardless of whether we think they deserve it or not. I think the truth is that actually it's more than an invitation. Actually, growing in compassion is the natural and inevitable outworking of the life of a follower of Jesus. We cannot be becoming more and more like Jesus if we're not becoming more and more compassionate. It just follows on naturally. When we are um, fixing our eyes on Jesus, saying, Jesus, make me more like you. Help me to be like you. Help me to reflect you to those around me. Compassion is an inevitable consequence of that type of prayer. It will start to ooze out of us in the same way that it just naturally oozed out of Jesus. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we're to clothe ourselves with compassion. The foundation for it is actually in who we are. It's the fact that we're God's chosen people, that we've been made holy and we are being made holy and we are dearly loved. We are the recipients of such astonishing compassion. How could we not show it to others around us when we have received so much? You know, we're to be compassionate to people, not because they deserve it. Whether they do or not, actually, it's it's immaterial in one sense. It's not because people come to us and say, I'm in need, will you help me? But because we're the people of God. Because we're children of the God who says that he is the compassionate and gracious God. Because we're followers of Jesus who had compassion on the crowds. And I think we see whatever part of the Bible you're reading, whether in Genesis right through to the end times, what we see is that God's compassion is especially focused on the poorest. It's especially focused on those that no one else wants anything to do with. Actually, it seems that um, if you were someone that the religious people in Jesus' day didn't want to mix with. That almost seemed to be the primary qualification for Jesus coming to have dinner at your house. And I wonder for us who that is today in our communities. Who is it that no one else wants to mix with, that everyone else has written off? Like I said, so often we can make the mistake of looking at the behaviour of the person in front of us rather than looking at, well, how does Jesus behave and I want to behave like him. There's a guy who um, came to our food bank in Hastings a while ago, and um, our food bank's been getting busier and busier and busier. It's been running for about seven and a half years, but in the last three years in particular, we've seen a massive increase. We've seen a 118% increase in referrals. And that often means, as we've been trying to get to grips with it, it can be chaotic in the food bank. It's not always been the kind of peaceful environment that we would like it to be for those who are coming in because sometimes we've just had so many people in there you can barely move and um, this was in the winter and this guy had quite serious mental health problems and he wasn't coping with being in a room with so many people so much noise and so the food bank manager came to get me I was sitting at my desk away from all this and he came to get me and he said can you just come and spend five minutes with this guy can you take him out of the room can you sit with him and I'll be honest with you I was like oh do I have to I'm really busy I wasn't really I wasn't sitting there feeling oh what an opportunity to be compassionate." I was like, actually, I've got quite a lot to do, and I'd rather not. But I was like, all right, I'll give you five minutes. I ended up with this guy for three hours, which I partly think is just God trying to help me with my heart. Um, But I went and I sat with this guy, and I took him uh, still to a public area of the building, but somewhere where there were fewer people, and it was less crammed. And I got him a sandwich, and we sat down. And then the first thing he said to me when we sat down is, I just need you to know that if I have to hurt you to get help, I'll do it. I was like, great. Thanks for that. I went, I said to him, okay, you know, fair enough, I understand. I was like, just give me a minute and I'll be back in a second. I went back to the food bank manager and was like, can someone else do this, please? I was like, like, can someone come and sit with me or something? Because I don't really want to be there on my own. And he was like, look, we're rammed. We can't help you. You've just got to go and do it. So just go and deal with it. I was like, thanks. So every safeguarding policy went out the window. Um, Like I say, we were were in a public place. So it wasn't quite as dangerous as it could have been. But anyway, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to this guy and I'm asking him his story and he starts to tell me that basically no one else will help him. He said that morning that he'd been to the hospital and he had a hospital wristband on. So, you know, it was, it was a true story that he'd been in the hospital and he said, they won't help me um, because I've been violent towards the staff. And so now when they see me coming, no one wants to help me. I was like, I didn't say this to him, but I did think, well, you have just started with me by threatening to hurt me, So, And then, you know, he was telling me, no one would help him. So I kept going away and making these phone calls and phoning every organisation locally that I could think of to try and get this guy some help because he's telling me that he's having a psychotic episode and that he's homeless. So I phoned the council and say, you know, he's homeless. You've got a statutory responsibility to find him accommodation. And they're like, no, we haven't. We know him. He's not eligible. Nothing we can do. And the woman wasn't being. I was speaking to, I know her Noah well, she wasn't being unkind. She was just like, we have fixed parameters and he doesn't meet the criteria and therefore we, we literally cannot help him. She said, if the temperature drops below th- freezing for three nights in a row and we reasonably believe he slept out in it, then we have to help him. I was like, he'll die because he was in jeans and a hoodie. She said, I'm really sorry, there's nothing I can do. Other organisations, I phoned some charities, I I, I even uh, phoned the police where we've got good contacts as a church and everyone was either telling me they knew him and they wouldn't help him because of how he treated their volunteers or their staff in the past, or they couldn't help him because he didn't meet certain criteria. And I realised through this three hours with this guy trying to get him help, if the church won't help him, then he has no hope. If we turn him away because he threatens to hurt us or because he's chaotic or because you know he's got more complex needs than we know how to deal with, he will get no help anywhere else. We have to help him because we're the people of God and we're the ones who when everyone else has run out of compassion or when everyone else says our system won't allow compassion... We have to be the ones who rush in and demonstrate the character of God to people. Otherwise, they will have no hope. You know, some people in um, church life, I get to speak in a lot of churches on subjects like this. And often I'm asked a question, which is, well, you know, surely this is just for some people and not for others. Surely, you know, this is just some Christians are called to care for the poor and, and, uh, you know, a special gift of compassion and others aren't. But, you know, what I see in the Bible is that compassion is not it's not like youth work. You know, youth work is something that if I'm honest with you, um, we've got some wonderful people in my church who do youth work and I am really glad they do it. (laughs) I am. I'm just being honest with you. I am really glad they do it so I don't have to. But you know what? Care for the poor, compassion for the poor, is much more like worship. Which is, if I stand here and tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not called to worship, you're all going to throw things at me, right, and tell me that I'm wrong. Because some are especially gifted to lead us into worship, but we are all called to worship. And in the same way, some are especially gifted to lead a project that helps the poorest or, to, or, or just seem to have a limitless resource of compassion and can lead us into it. But none of us can sit here and say, I'm not called to this. Because it's part of just following Jesus. We see in Matthew 25, Jesus actually says it's a, an indicator of how well we know him. Whether we're feeding the hungry, giving um, drink to the thirsty, Visiting the sick and the imprisoned, giving clothes to those who need it, giving shelter to the homeless. But you know what? We don't grow in compassion by osmosis. We don't grow in compassion by listening to someone talk about it. We don't even grow in compassion by standing here and talking about it. It doesn't just, it doesn't just happen. It's something we have to cultivate in our hearts. It's something we have to push into. Like I said, my natural disposition is not to be compassionate. There are other things that do come so easily to me. This isn't one. This is one I have to say, God, I want to be like you. Please help me. Because without your spirit left to my own devices, I'm not going to grow in compassion. But actually empowered by your spirit, you want me to become like Jesus, so I will if I'm pursuing it. God isn't slow to answer the prayer of someone who says, I want to be more like Jesus and I want to be more compassionate. God rushes in. In fact, there's a woman in my church who um, realised that her non-Christian daughter was much more compassionate than she was and she felt convicted by it. So she started praying and said, God, I want to be more compassionate. I don't think it's right that a non-Christian should be more compassionate than I am. Will you help me? She said it was literally just a few days later she was out on a run. She went out on the same route running Every um, three times a week, she went on the same route running. And she said she passed the same homeless um, guy, one guy in particular, every single time. And she'd never, ever even thought of stopping to help him. And after she started praying this, a few days later, she ran by him and she burst into tears. And she said, it's like God broke my heart in that moment. So she ran home, made a bacon sandwich and ran back and took it to him and gave it to him. That was a few days after saying, God, please make me more compassionate. God is not slow to answer this prayer. That woman um, has just moved to another country. But before she moved, she'd spent months where actually she got into the habit of once a week Um, making 12 bacon sandwiches, putting them in a little rucksack and then going on a route and running because she'd started to count how many homeless people were on her route and she was just... I have this image of her running, like, liberally throwing these... I'm I'm sure it's not quite like that, but the point is that when she said to God, will you make me more compassionate, he wasn't slow to answer. He was quick and it had a meaningful um, outworking in her life. It wasn't just that she felt some new emotions... It was that it translated into practical action and activity. And just quickly, I think there's a few ways we can cultivate this. One of them is taking the time to hear people's stories. I find for me that God does so much work in my heart when I take the time to ask someone, well, you know, how have you got where you you are today? There's a a homeless guy in the streets in Hastings who, um, I've got to know him a little bit, built a friendship with him, and he's... He sits in the same spot every day. And one of the first times I ever went up and spoke to him, as I was talking to him, someone walked past and yelled um, at me, don't help him, he's actually got a flat. I was like, wow. I mean, I don't know what has to be going on in your heart to feel the need to yell that at someone who might help someone who's sitting on the streets. But that aside... I already actually knew that he had a flat because I'd got chatting to him and I'd asked his story and he'd explained to me everything that had happened to him. He'd had a stroke when he was 42 years old and prior to that, he lived with his girlfriend, he had a job, he was earning a relatively comfortable salary and he had this stroke when he was 42 and through a series of events that's too long to go into, he ended up jobless, lost his relationship, he lost his home and he said, I do have a flat, what I've got in it is a mattress and that's pretty much it. He's like, I haven't got an oven. I haven't. He, uh, he did have a plate and a knife and fork and a spoon. One of each. And he had two mugs. And he talked me through all the stuff that he owned. And I probably could have counted it on... I wouldn't have run out of fingers and thumbs if I'd counted it. And so he's like, I sit on the streets and beg because it's how I get, it's how I get food. So the person who yelled at me was right, but also kind of fundamentally wrong if that makes sense. I think it's having honest conversations as well with people. So I mentioned a couple of things that when I first became a Christian about going to dinner around people's houses, do you know I never told anyone that at the time? And no one ever asked either. And then a couple of years ago, I was at an event and I was telling this story for the first time about how I'd never seen this food served up like that. And the uh, former leader of my church was there and he was like, wasn't that our house you used to come to dinner at? And I was like, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't think about that when I shared that story. And he said, you know, the funny thing is, he's like, that would have been 15 years ago and I've never even thought about it. He's like, I wonder how many people we've had for dinner. And we didn't know. We didn't know how uncomfortable it made you feel. We thought we were doing a great thing having you around all the time. But we had no idea. And a simple conversation. Because what I really wish they'd do would go first so that I could copy them and learn how to do it. But if you don't have those conversations, and I didn't have it either, so I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying it's, you know, we've got to have conversations with people when you recognise someone maybe doesn't have the same background as you, to say please tell me what is offensive to you, or what excludes you, or things I might do without even thinking about it that just make you feel deeply uncomfortable. I think we've got to be in it for the long term as well. I'll just finish with one more story. There's um. One of the things I think I find it really, really easy to forget is how patient God is with me and how my sanctification is taking quite a long time. Maybe you guys have arrived. I certainly haven't. And so one of the reasons I find it so easy to judge other people is because I get impatient with them. I want them to get sorted out faster than they're getting sorted out. I don't want them to keep slipping back into the same bad patterns of behaviour, even though that pretty much has been most of my Christian life. Where I've been saying to God, "Please help me." Same thing. Sorry, I'm coming to you with the same thing. Sorry, God. It's again, I'm coming with the same thing. And this kind of hit home for me um, last summer when a woman in the church invited me to a party at her house, and. Um, she said to me before I went, she said, just to let you know, um, you may not want to come because we'll probably be trolleyed. She'll probably be drunk. And she wasn't joking. I turned up at this party. And I, I turned up at like half seven. It wasn't even that late. I said to her, the first thing I said when I got there is, how are you guys already this drunk? She said, well, we've been drinking since midday. I was like, I heard you from up the street. I was like, I didn't, I didn't, I'd never been to her house before. I didn't have to work out which one it was because the noise coming from it um and this is a woman in the church she's been saved about 10 years and so i get there and i'm like oh why you know i didn't say this to her but i was thinking why is she why is she drinking you know why is this still happening she's been saved for 10 years shouldn't she know better also i've told this story to a few people in my church with her permission and that's often the first thing they've said is no doesn't she hasn't she learned yet that we don't do that, you know, kind of that's, that's not godly behaviour. But, you know, in her drunkenness, she whispered, well, I think she thought she was whispering, in my ear. She said to me, hey, Nat, God's told me to give up work for a year and serve the church and, and serve our projects that help the poorest. I was like, oh, okay. Now, she's a single mum with three kids, right? So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to give her some wise counsel here. And tell her not to do this. And then she goes, yes, I've done it. I'm like, what do you mean you've done it? She says, well, yeah. I'm like, God told me to do it. So I've, I've quit my job. Yeah, I'm, I've done it. I'm like, what do you mean you've done it? And her answer was, again, well, God told me to do it. So I did it. And, you know, in that moment, I just got struck by this amazing reality that I may look outside like a nice, good Christian. I may find it very, very easy not to get drunk at parties. But actually, would my heart be so fast to obey God in something so much more radical? And do you know what? She did it. She, she worked for our church for a year, voluntarily. She volunteered for a year. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to get hold of her. I'll, you know, I'll disciple her. This will be wonderful. I think she has thoroughly discipled me through this last year. I have learned way more from her about radical obedience, about doing what God says when he says to do it, not arguing with him, not negotiating with him. She has taught me so much more. And I had this real like, kind of superior and patronising attitude, thinking, I'll do her good, I'll I'll help her. She's been amazing. She has been the one who has come alongside some of the people from the roughest part of our community and has walked with them in a way that most people in my church never could because they just wouldn't be able to find the connection points. And just as a quick aside, sorry, I'll wrap up now, but just as a quick aside... She came to me a couple of months into her year, volunteering with us, and said, Do you know what, Nat? God's been really speaking to me about my drinking. She's like, I think God wants me to stop drinking. Do you know, I just thought again, I love to do the Holy Spirit's job for him, but he is so much better at it than I am. He is. is." I'd love us to pray. You know, actually, for me, compassion is so much a heart issue. The biggest obstacle to me being compassionate to people around me isn't their behavior, it's my own heart. So I wonder if we could just, maybe the band could come back up, but just while they're doing that, I wonder if we could just take a couple of minutes to just quietly reflect on our own. God, you have been so compassionate to me. Do you want me to grow in this? Can I be more compassionate? Who could I show your compassion to in this way? Just spend a couple of minutes just letting God kind of search our hearts and reveal things to us and ask him to make us more like Jesus.